Let me ask you to turn in with your uh, turn in your Bibles now to Revelation chapter twenty. Revelation chapter twenty. This is the thirty-second message in our study in the book of Revelation, and we come this evening to chapter twenty. And I know some of you have asked me about this, and it's kind of the chapter you've been waiting for. Uh, what do we do about what the Bible says regarding the millennium? Uh, some writers have called this one of the most controversial portions of the book of Revelation. Certainly, a lot has been written about it. A lot of different theories have arisen from it. But my purpose tonight is not to simply explore the, the finer points of eschatology and not to simply uh, stroke our curiosity. We want to discover more fully the main themes in the book of Revelation, the, the glorious triumph of Jesus over all of his enemies and the reality, the victory that he shares with us, his people, in that victory. So, with that in mind, I, I want to read Revelation 20. Now, the, the title in the bulletin says, Revelation 21 to 10, that the millennium and Satan's defeat. But actually, I'm only going to go through verse 6 tonight. Hopefully, I'll do the remainder of the chapter next week. So, it's really the millennium and Satan's binding, if you want to call it that. But anyhow, Revelation 20, beginning in verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released a little longer or for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. This is the word of the Lord. So, before we dive too deeply into this particular text or the specifics of this text, I do want to review for you or, or I guess explain, I haven't really talked about this yet, but there are three primary views about the millennium. What are we to make of the millennium? Uh, we hear about it a lot whenever people talk about Revelation and talk about the end times. Now, there are three primary views that arise out of how people uh, interpret this chapter. And what you believe about this 1,000-year period is going to impact how you interpret the rest of the book of Revelation. But what you believe about the book, rest of the book of Revelation certainly has a, a profound impact on what you understand John means when he speaks of the 1,000 years. So the three common views about the millennium are premillennialism, postmillennialism, and amillennialism. Now, say that fast like five times and see if you can do it, but not, not right now. So, but before I dive into those, I want to share with you my own personal theory about how we are to understand predictive prophecy. And I gained this theory from studying about the episode in, Luke, in Matthew chapter 1 about the Magi. You remember they came to Jesus, or excuse me, they, excuse me, they came to Jerusalem. They'd seen a star. And they knew that it was a sign from God. And so they arrived in Jerusalem and they asked, where is he who is born the king of the Jews? For we saw his star, his star, when it arose, and we have come to worship him. It's very interesting. If you study out the rest of the passage, you find that the, the chief priests and the scribes came together and they knew, they said, well, he is to be born in Bethlehem. And that was accurate. They knew that much, but they had no idea when it was actually supposed to take place. They weren't anticipating that it was at this time. They had no idea that he would be born of a poor, humble virgin, even though the prophecies tell us that's the case. They had no idea that he would come to, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
Again, even though the scriptures clearly point to that now that we understand it in hindsight. But Jesus had to instruct his disciples about how these prophecies were to be fulfilled. The New Testament, excuse me, the Old Testament prophecies were clear enough to validate that, in fact, Jesus had come. But they were not specific enough or clearly enough understood that even the most humble and godly saints of that day would be able to anticipate the details of the timing of his arrival. So as we study the book of Revelation, we need a humility about ourselves. We don't want to be too uh, sure that I have it all figured out because we don't. There are some details in Revelation that are quite clear, but there are some that are symbolic and they're not nearly as clear as we would like or some people would like to have us believe. So, that being said, let's look at the three different approaches to this thousand-year period to which John refers in Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 6, actually verse 7. The first is premillennialism, which believes that this chapter is describing for us a period in time, a literal period of 1,000 years after the return of Jesus. Jesus' return is depicted in chapter 19 with his triumphant uh, riding on a white horse and dis- defeating his enemies. And following that, that return and that victory, uh, his, the millennium is described for us. Now, there's two types of premillennialism. There's dispensational premillennialism. And I would guess many of you here grew up being taught what we'd call dispensationalism or dispensational premillennialism. I did. I was. And the idea there, the the view, is that Jesus, uh, his return in chapter 19 takes place prior to the millennium. But it's not an every eye will see return. It's a secret rapture where the church is taken out of the world very suddenly. We just vanish. And the church isn't here anymore. And the the chaos leads to a seven-year tribulation, and coming out of that ultimately is a victory that uh, ushers in this millennium, this 1,000-year period of peace and tranquility and gospel prosperity, primarily among the Jewish people. The church has been taken out. Now God's purpose for Israel, long prophesied in the Old Testament, is being fulfilled that uh, Jerusalem, the, 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 the theocratic kingdom is reestablished in Jerusalem, primarily led by the Jewish people, but great revival takes place through the Jews to the Gentiles, and they're a blessing to the entire earth. But Satan has been bound during that time, and this is wonderful, wonderful revival until the end of the millennium. When Satan is loosed again, he leads, he he deceives the nations, brings this great final Armageddon battle. He is cast out, and then comes the final judgment and the final resurrection of the saints to life and the unbelievers to eternity. So there are two great battles in this understanding. There's that battle in Revelation 19 when Jesus comes and defeats his enemies that are poised to destroy the church, but then we're taken out, but then there's Armageddon that takes place at the end of the millennium. Uh, And many times I've heard dispensationalists say, if it's not literal, it's liberal. Well, the problem with that statement, if it's not literal, meaning in chapter 19 this happens, and then chapter 20 that happens, and it's a literal sequence... The problem is there's an awful lot that is not that they're having to fill in the blanks in dispensational view of things, and there's an awful lot of symbolism. And it can't be literal, although they have all kinds of problems. Now, there's an earlier form. Dispensationalism really wasn't even, nobody knew what it was. It, it, it had never been formulated until the late 1800s. So it's relatively new in terms of the 2,000 years of church history that we have. But prior to that, and, and, and today there's still many who hold what's called historic premillennialism. They still believe the thousand-year reign of Jesus takes place here on the earth, but it's not exclusively Jerusalem, or excuse me, exclusively Jewish Christians, it's still the church, composed of Jews, Gentiles alike. But the influence of Satan will be negligible during this time. The lion will lie down with the lamb, and swords will be beat into plowshares, and there will be this glorious 1,000-year reign of Christ here on the earth. Now, that's pre-millennialism. Then there is post-millennialism. Pre means before, post means after. Very good. 
so they believe that Jesus' return will be after the millennium, but this millennial promise here uh, speaks to a time of un, unimpeded progress of the gospel throughout the present age. Now, they would say, Jesus is already reigning in heaven over the earth. All authority was, in fact, given to him in heaven and on earth. But through the preaching of the gospel, the, the gospel will spread far and wide, and that will usher in this glorious golden age of righteousness for a thousand years. Now, most post-millennials would say, the thousand years may not be literal, but it certainly points to a very long period of time as the gospel advances and the world is predominantly converted to faith in Jesus Christ. And at the very end of that time, Jesus returns to judge the wicked and then also to usher the saints into heaven. And there are some really, really highly respected and highly regarded Reformed theologians who are post-millennial. But I would say among the Reformed uh, camp, most Reformed people that we are familiar with today would consider themselves amillennial. Ah is the Latin prefix that means not. In other words, they, they do not believe in a literal 1,000-year millennium. They believe that number is symbolic of a very great period of time. But this 1,000-year period doesn't refer to something off in the future. It refers to the very present gospel age, beginning with the life and ministry of Jesus, his conquest over sin and death and Satan, binding of Satan, which I'll explain, and that now he's reigning from his throne in heaven. So the millennial reign in premillennialism believes that it's taking place, Jesus and the saints here on the earth. But amillennialism... I'm going to do that a few times. Amillennialism teaches or believes that that, that millennial reign, if, if we want to call it that, is actually taking place in heaven. It's the, it's the glorified, or not yet glorified, but the, the saints in heaven who are in what we might call an intermediate state. They have, they have died. They've gone to heaven. They're with God, with Jesus, reigning from heaven, and yet not having received their, their glorified bodies, what takes place at the second resurrection and after the final judgment. So, during this time, we believe that Satan has been bound by the victory of Jesus so that the gospel can be free, preached and embraced far and wide. And I'll explain why we believe that as we go forward. But there's an understanding that there will be, as this chapter, nine, after chapter 20 tells us, there will be at the very end of the church age or the present age a, a final cataclysm. Satan is unbound for a time. He deceives the nations to declare war upon the Lord. And that last great battle, Satan is conquered. Jesus comes, defeats Satan and all his enemies, casts Satan into hell, raises all of the dead, and every man and woman, boy and girl, will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, the great white throne judgment. And the righteous have nothing to fear. Those in Christ will be ushered into eternal glory with glorified bodies, and those outside of Christ will be cast into outer darkness. That's what we understand Scripture to believe, and I'm gonna, or to teach. Now, I'm going to explain more of those details uh, as we work through the text. But let me say this. All three of these views, pre, post, and amillennialism, all arise or are largely out of these six verses. There's nothing else in the entire Bible talking about this 1,000-year period of time. Now, they all rely heavily on other texts in the Scriptures to fill in details, and depending on your view, uh, influences which other texts of Scripture you would rely upon. But all three, and this is important to recognize, all three have questions they cannot answer. I can't answer every question to the view that I embrace, which is Amil. But the post-millennialist and the pre-millennialist, they can't give satisfying answers to many questions as well. Now, there's a fourth view called pan-millennialism. And it's just all going to pan out in the end. All right. Now, we know that's true, but that doesn't really help us to make sense of the Word of God. And so, we're not going to spend any time uh, in that vein. But Dennis Johnson, in his commentary in Revelation, said there, uh, all three views differ in the way they answer two questions. The first question is, what is the order of Jesus' return and this 1,000-year period of time uh, described in Revelation 20? 
Does he come first, before, after, or is, is he reigning now during? But then the other is, what is the nature of this 1,000-year period of time? Is it literally 1,000 years where Jesus and, and the, the church or Jesus and Israel are reigning here on the earth? Or is it uh, a time in which the gospel is going far and wide and more and more uh, the world is coming to embrace the gospel and, and, and swords are beaten into plowshares and Jesus is, uh, the, the influence of the church is increasing in the world, which will culminate in the coming of Christ? Or is it Christ reigning in heaven during the present age of the church, however long that might be? And again, I believe it's the third. I, I approach this book from a perspective of amillennialism. I'm not going to go any further giving a detailed description of these other views, although I will make a few comments along the way where, they, where they're relevant. But my purpose is to explain the meaning of these verses and show the great blessing that God holds out for us as His people in that which He is t- describing for us here in Revelation 20. Now, I, I want to I point out this. If you, if you go back and look at the text... Starting in verse 2, all the way through verse 7, actually, when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison, which we'll look at next week. But every verse in those, in verses 2 through 7, makes a reference to those 1,000 year period. But it's the only place in the Bible that this thousand year period is referred to or alluded to in any way. So all the direct teaching about the millennium is rooted in these seven verses. Robert Mount says, judging from the amount of attention given by the many writers, by many writers to these first 10 verses, this, this text in chapter 21 would judge it to be the single most important segment of the book of Revelation. Uh, but it's not. It's truly not. Another writer said, so much has been said or written about these thousand years out of all proportion to the very little that is said about them in the Bible. Now, I'm going to be very, very candid with you this evening. There are many, many, many other texts in this book of Revelation that I enjoy preaching about more than this one. I feel like I'm kind of to kind of navigate a whole bunch of stuff that you're going, what? Huh? Well, let me get that straight. And, and I'll tell you, me too, all right? I've been having to wrestle with these things, and I, I want to make it as clear as possible. But how much more enjoyable to look at the saints around the throne crying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive honor and blessing and glory and praise. Or I make all things new. No more sorrow or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things will pass away or have passed away. I can't wait to get to chapter 21, but we're here in 20 right now. And that's the, that's the labor of consistent and consecutive expositional preaching. You don't get to skip the parts you don't want to cover. It's not that I don't want to cover, it's just this isn't my favorite. Some of you are like, I couldn't wait for you to get to it. Now you're raining on my parade. I hope not. hope not. Anyhow, let me go forward. And let's look, first of all, uh, uh, as, as John is expressing for us or describing what he uh, sees both in heaven and on earth. Let's consider in the verse 3 verses those thousand years John describes as viewed from the earth. I'm going to read it again. Then I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He's coming to the earth, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Now, if we recall last Sunday, we looked at the, 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 the great victory of the Lord Jesus in chapter 19, where Jesus riding on a white horse and the saints on horses, the saints and angels on white horses behind him. And he's clothed in a robe that's dipped in blood, and we find that's the blood of his enemies as he slays them with a sword proceeding from his, from his mouth. And he wins the final victory over the beast and over the false prophet, and he casts them into final judgment. And now we come to chapter 20, and Jesus is casting Satan into this bottomless pit for a thousand years, after which Satan arises again. Now, if we understand the book of Revelation as a pure chronology, 
we're going to end up in premillennialism and maybe dispensational premillennialism. But Revelation, as we pointed out over and over again, is not simply one from the beginning to end, a chronological sequence. Rather, uh, I think the very best explanation, I've seen it uh, espoused by many different writers and, and how they describe it, and I'm more and more convinced of this, is what's called progressive parallelism. There are seven parallel accounts of God's judgment upon this world and the final victory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Seven times this story is told with greater intensity, greater, uh, greater uh, detail in some cases from different perspectives, uh, but you, end, you, you go through one cycle and you go back to the beginning and you go to another cycle. And so at Revelation chapter 19, we completed the sixth cycle where Jesus comes back and, 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 and carries out final judgment, and that's not the first time we've seen that in this book. We've seen it numerous times where the kings of the earth were crying out on the rocks to fall on them, or where the, the angel uh, 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 cast his sickle and harvested the earth. Over and over, we see the same story told with different language, different emphases, different perspectives. So chapter 19, we come to the end of the cycle of judgment, and chapter 20, we begin a new cycle that actually takes us all the way back to the life and ministry of Jesus, where he defeats Satan and binds him for this period that is referred to as a thousand years. So the amillennial understanding of this 1,000 years is it's the gospel age. It's the age from the time Jesus has come the first time until Jesus comes back the second time. And from the, the, the perspective viewed on, on earth, what we see on earth is Satan has been bound for a 1,000 years. Now, as soon as I say that, some of you are going to go, how are, is that possible? That God's word could speak of Satan being bound on this earth right now when we look around and we see ungodliness all around. And we see deception and we see confusion. And we see people in the grip of the enemy. Revelation 20 tells us that he is chained. He's thrown into this bottomless pit. He's locked. He's sealed up for a thousand years. It seems like that's pretty absolute, doesn't it? And it doesn't seem consistent with what we see as we look in our world today, where evil is running rampant. And so we have to ask, is Satan really bound? Is that really what God's Word teaches? You can't deny Satan is active. There's great deception all around us. There's great temptation around us and even inside of us in our own hearts. We have a battle daily with our own flesh and with the world and even with the devil. So in what sense could we possibly consider that Satan is bound in the present gospel age? We have to understand what does John mean, what does God mean when he says he's bound? In Matthew chapter 4, you have the first great showdown, as it were, between Jesus and Satan. Jesus is sent out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And for 40 days, he doesn't eat. And then Satan comes and tempts him to turn bread into stones, to cast himself down and prove that he's Messiah that the, by the angels catching him, to kneel down, bow down and worship Satan, and he can have all the world without having to go to the cross. Satan's seeking to tempt Jesus in numerous ways, and Jesus continues to counter Satan's temptations, counter his attacks by quoting the scriptures, and Satan was defeated, and he went away. In Luke chapter 10, Turn, turn with me in your Bibles to Luke 10, if you would. The, 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 Jesus has sent his disciples out, two by two, to engage in ministry, to preach the gospel, to tell others of the coming of the kingdom. And in Luke chapter 10, verse 17, it says, the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Now, he's not talking about the original casting out of Satan from heaven that took back place who knows when, whether you know, it was before the temptation in the garden, it was before the fall, where Satan and that great battle took place and Satan and his minions were cast out. This is Satan falling in sense of he is defeated. If you look at the following chapter, chapter 11, beginning in verse 20, 
Jesus is being questioned by those who oppose him. Uh, that he, they, 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 they falsely accuse him. They say he's casting demons out by the power of Beelzebul, Satan. In verse 19, he says, if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom does your son, do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they'll be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come among you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. The strong man, Satan, guarded his palace, as it were, this world. And Jesus, the stronger man, comes and attacks him, defeats him, and spoils his possession, that being those whom God has chosen to make his own. In Matthew chapter 12, we find some similar language, but very interesting terminology there as well. Matthew 12, verse 29 Again, Jesus is answering the question about by what power do you pass out or cast out demons? Verse 28, if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed, he may plunder his house. And that word first binds the strong man that Jesus uses in Matthew chapter 12, relatively early in his ministry, certainly well before his cross or his resurrection. He speaks of binding the strong man to plunder his possession, that is, the world and particularly the elect. And he uses the very same word that we find in Revelation chapter 20. He binds the strong man. In Colossians chapter 2, And verse 15, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, then Colossians 2.15. The Apostle Paul writes, speaking of the cross, he canceled the dead in verse 14 that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing, triumphing, triumphing over them. In him. Jesus disarmed the rulers and the authorities. And you can say, well, wait a minute, they, they, they still seem powerful, they still seem dangerous. And, you know, uh, Paul tells us later that uh, our, our, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and principalities in the heavenly places. How are they bound? How are they disarmed? How have they been made a public, public spectacle of? Because what Paul's talking about is not predictive prophecy. It's, it's something that's already accomplished. It's Jesus' victory on the cross, dying and, and, and satisfying the wrath of God. It's Jesus' triumph as he rose from the grave to prove that he actually did all that he said he came to do. And there's a present application for us as Jesus has won this victory over Satan as well as sin and death. And we find that application in a number of texts. In Revelation chapter 4, or excuse me, James chapter 4, verse 7, James tells us, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Now, we're not talking about a simple token resistance here. We're talking about maybe a fight for your life, but Satan cannot defeat the child of God who is doing battle with the armor of God and fighting in the power of God. Of Jesus Christ. We could not resist the devil if he were bound. If he were not bound, he would make short work of us. In James, or excuse me, in 1 Peter chapter 5, 8, it tells us that the devil is prowling about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And he says, but resist him standing firm in your faith. How can we hope to resist Satan? Well, because he's bound. There's a limit to what God will allow him to do, particularly regarding his saints. It's been, it's been compared to putting a dog on a leash. And as long as you're outside the, 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 the distance of that leash, he can't touch you. If you get too close, you can get in trouble. So it's not that Satan's influence has been utterly removed, but it has been substantially curtailed. So... The primary, the, the, the binding of Satan, the Gospels describe as already having taken place. Paul affirms that. 
But, but what's the primary sense? What's the purpose of his being bound? Back in Revelation chapter three, uh, 20 once again. In Revelation chapter 20 and verse 3. He bound him, he threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years are ended. To keep him from deceiving the nations until the thousand years are complete. Now, the binding of Satan here has particular reference to the power of the gospel. Throughout the Old Testament, all of the nations were in utter darkness. Israel, the people of God, had received the revelation of who God is, and so they had light. But the rest of the world were in darkness and in idolatry and, and under the, the power of Satan, as it were. It was very rare for a Gentile before Jesus came very rare for a Gentile to come and worship God. That just didn't happen. It was very rare for them to acknowledge that God who created the heaven and the earth is the one and only true God. Turn with me one more time, keeping a finger in, in Revelation 20 or a marker, but turn with me to John chapter 12. John 12, Jesus had said in verse 27, now is my soul troubled, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. For this purpose, I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it and I will glorify it. The crowd stood there and heard it said, who heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel spoken. But Jesus said, this voice has come to you for my sake, not mine, or your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Now the ruler of this world is cast out, and I, being lifted up, speaking of his crucifixion, will draw all people to myself. Not that everybody gets saved, but people from every tribe and language and people and nation will come to Jesus Christ because Satan has been bound from deceiving them and re- to reject the gospel. And of course, we're talking about the elect of God whom he will call from throughout the world. The binding of Satan has to do with our ability to take the gospel to the nations. When Jesus said, all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth, therefore go, make disciples. That would not be possible if Satan had free reign on this earth. Now it's not only possible, it is certain that he will call his people. And there are enormous challenges. The task itself is huge. There is darkness that men and women are under, and there's so many nations that seem to be under Satan's domain. But God's telling us, don't fear, don't lose heart. Don't be afraid. Don't hesitate. The enemy is bound. And it's not that he has no influence in the lives of men. He actually has tremendous influence in many people's lives, but he is powerless to hold the elect of God back from the gospel of Jesus Christ. He has been bound He can no longer deceive those whom God will call. Throughout the world, new churches are being established. The gospel is spreading. In that sense, the church is conquering the world rather than the world conquering the church. Churches are being planted in amazing places where there's false religion, where there's Islam and Hindu and uh, and, and, and nominal Christianity, or where there's atheism that's hostile to the gospel of Jesus Christ, or there's a a nominalism or a rampant secularism that is utterly indifferent, if not hostile, to the good news of Jesus. There are cultures in our world that seem to be in the grasp of the enemy, but Satan's bound. And he is helpless to continue to deceive all of those whom God will call. We know his schemes. We know that we need to be on guard. We do not have to fear him. If we resist him faithfully in the power of Christ, he will flee from us. Now, at the end of the thousand years, it tells us that he will be set free for a time to wreak havoc once again. And we're going to treat that, Lord willing, next Sunday. But let's consider for a moment, that's, that's the view of the thousand years from the earth. But let's talk about the thousand years from the perspective of heaven. What do we see here? 
Back in Revelation chapter 20, we see in verse 4, then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or on their hands. They came to life, and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The dead in Christ reign on these thrones with Jesus for a thousand years. Now, John pulls back this veil. What happens when we die? He gives us a glimpse. If you're a Christian, our souls go immediately into the conscious, glorious presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said to the thief on the cross, this day you will be with me in paradise. Paul was wrestling with the decision whether to remain in this world or to go to heaven in Philippians chapter 1. And it seems like God is giving him some say in the matter. And maybe it is, what should my defense strategy be? Should I be coy and careful so that my life is preserved? Or should I just go all in, knowing that that'll cost me my neck? Uh, It's hard to say what was behind that wrestling and that grappling. But in that context, Paul says to live is Christ, but to die is gain, more of Christ. In verse 23, he says, I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. Paul expected that the moment he died, he would be ushered immediately in the conscious presence, the glorious presence of Jesus Christ. He said in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 6, as long as we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. Now, Jesus is in us, with us all the time. Our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. But there's something of uh, when we depart these bodies, we are with the Lord. He says in verse 8, 2 Corinthians 5, we would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. And so these saints who are there at home with the Lord, yet the second resurrection, the new bodies, the glorious bodies have not happened yet, have not been given yet. So they're waiting with Jesus until that day, the end of this age, when they and we will all receive glorious resurrection bodies. And what are these saints doing in the meantime? We get a glimpse here in chapter 20. Now, something I want you to notice, those of you who grew up with dispensational teaching, Notice what you don't see here in chapter 20. You don't see any reference to the Jewish nation or the Jewish people, do you? You don't see anything about Palestine or the land or any kind of earthly kingdom at all. You see Jesus, you don't see Jesus reigning on the earth. He's reigning from thrones in heaven. You don't see a rebuilding or reestablishment of the temple in Jerusalem. No mention to that at all. And these are all central to the premillennial view. And they're absent in the only passage in the entire Bible that deals with the concept of a millennium. That's why I don't embrace premillennialism, for, for one thing. And if you insist on a literal interpretation that would lead you to premillennialism, you've got a problem with Revelation chapter 20. So we've stated this is what we don't see. Let's talk about what we do see. John sees thrones. Now, in Revelation, there's 47 references to thrones. 47. Three of them speak of the throne of Satan. He says to one of the churches, I know where you dwell, where the throne of Satan is. He speaks of the throne of the beast, the Antichrist. Those are the ones on the earth. Every other mention of thrones is in heaven, the throne of God, the throne of Christ. So the thrones that that are mentioned here in Revelation 20 can only be in heaven, not on this earth. The millennial kingdom, as it were, is not earthly, it's heavenly. It's where Jesus rules and reigns, and where we, once we uh, depart from this life, where we will reign with him. When Jesus died and rose again, he ascended into heaven, and he sat down at the right hand of his Father where he rules and reigns, and now those who are have died in Christ, reign with him. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 21, this is written to the church at Laodicea. Remember the one that was so lukewarm he was inclined to spew them out of his mouth? But then immediately after verse 20, where he says, whoever, uh, I stand at the door and knock, whoever hears and opens the door, I'll come in and dine with him and he with me 
Then he says in verse 21, to him who overcomes, and there's a promise to the overcomer in every single message to the churches, but to him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. That's heaven. That's not earthly thrones, Jesus refers to. So who is it seated on these thrones? Verse 4, I saw thrones seated on them were those with, with whom, to whom the authority to judge was committed. Well, who's that? Also, I saw the souls of those who'd been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshiped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So who is there reigning with Jesus for this thousand years or for this very long period of time, the entire church age in heaven? Is it just the martyrs who were beheaded? Well, what about the martyrs who were killed some other means? No, it's all those who have died, not only by martyrdom, but those who had remained faithful, had not received the mark of the beast, those who had not uh, 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 worshipped the beast or his image in any way, those who had remained faithful, who had overcome, they are now ruling and reigning with Jesus Christ in heaven. We heard Pastor Chansky speak this morning of this older man in his church who had passed away. And he said, where is this brother? Has he just evaporated, vanished? Has he been annihilated? No, he is ruling and reigning with Christ in heaven, just like my mom, and I trust my dad, and many others who you love, who have gone before. Verse 4 speaks of those who came to life, who reigned with Christ. Verse 5 speaks of all the rest of the dead remain dead. Verse 5, the rest of the dead did not come to life until a thousand years ended, this is the first resurrection. Those other, the rest of the dead who remain dead, those are those not in Christ, who are not raised to glory in heaven. Their bodies remain in the ground, and their souls are in some, not purgatory, we don't believe in that. Uh, there's, there's kind of mystery uh, about what happens to those souls, but they will be raised on the last day and judged and cast into eternal darkness. Eternal conscious punishment. We'll look at that in weeks to come. But in verse 5, when it speaks of this is the first resurrection, he's not talking about what happens to those dead outside of Christ. He said, those, those who died outside of Christ, they don't have any part in this first resurrection. Blessed and holy, verse 6, is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Speaking of those who reign with Christ. But this term resurrection here doesn't speak of a bodily resurrection. It refers to a spiritual resurrection. Our bodies die, but we rise to be with Jesus in heaven forever or throughout this age until we receive glorious new bodies. Our spirits are ushered into the presence of Jesus immediately where we remain through the rest of this age. Now, there will be a final resurrection. The saints will rise and, uh, and, and all outside of Christ will rise and we will all stand before the great white throne of God's judgment and the saints clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ will receive glorious resurrection bodies and the new heaven and the new earth will be instituted and we will forever be with the Lord. And we're going to talk about that in weeks to come. But those who are outside of Christ will be judged guilty and condemned forever. And verse 6 speaks of this judgment as the second death. But there's a great blessing in verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. This is what's been called the intermediate state. The Bible doesn't teach soul sleep that we die, our souls are asleep until we're raised and to go to heaven. No, it teaches that we are in conscious presence of God and the Lord Jesus. And there's a great blessing declared here for those who die in Christ. They share in the first resurrection. It says blessed and holy, meaning that we at that point no longer have sin. We no longer struggle with the vestiges of the curse. We will love him, as one of the hymn writers wrote, with unsinning heart. 
we will be done with sin and sorrow and shame and guilt and all of those sorts of things. We will be holy without blemish in the presence of our Lord. There will be no condemnation. There is no condemnation for those in Jesus Christ. There will be nothing to fear. Right now, it also says they, are, they will be priests of God and of Christ. Right now, the Bible says we are priests. 1 Peter 2.9 says, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of his darkness and into his marvelous light. Let me ask you this question. You're called to be a royal priest, a holy nation. You're called to declare the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So how conscious are you moment by moment of his marvelous light? How conscious are you moment by moment of the horrendous darkness from which he called you? How conscious are you moment by moment by moment of just how excellent our Lord truly is? You see, here in this veil of tears, here in this present life, we find ourselves still wrestling with that curse, wrestling with those vestiges of sin, wrestling with the inability to grasp fully that which God has done for us. But on that day, in the presence of Jesus, being royal and perfect and holy priests, we will be utterly amazed at his marvelous light, and we will joyfully declare his excellencies. So even as the writer, hymn writer said, when we've been there 10,000 years bright, shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing his praise than when we first begun. We're a royal priesthood. We, we, we're called to serve and worship God. And it's, it's something more glorious than we could possibly imagine. We can't conceive of it because we've never imagined anything so glorious. We can't imagine anything quite that glorious. But Paul tells us the glory that will be revealed to us far outweighs present suffering, whatever that suffering, however deep it might be. But I would say also the glory to be revealed to us will far outweigh any glory that can be comprehended or experienced in this present life. However glorious, the most wonderful sunrise or sunset or majestic mountain or the love that is experienced even among the most godly Christians, however glorious that is, pales in comparison to the glories that will be ours in the presence of our Savior. Paul tells us that glory far outweighs earthly sorrow. Psalm 1611, you've made known to me the path of life. You'll fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Sometimes those joys and those pleasures seem kind of elusive, kind of hard to lay our hands on. But in chapter 20, we see the saints. We get, we get, that, we get that veil pulled back just a bit, and we see these saints ruling and reigning on their thrones with Jesus waiting for that final consummation. But even there right now, blessed, holy, the second death has no power over them. They are priests of God and of Jesus Christ, and they reign with him for a thousand years, meaning a very long time, however long that may be. And as glorious as that will be, what we find described in chapter 21 is even better. But I'm not going to go there tonight. So, first of all, there's great comfort for us. If you've lost a loved one who's in Christ, what an amazing comfort to think of their ruling and reigning in the presence of Jesus, and they have no concern of a second death. They are, uh, they are flawless, radiant priests before their God. And there's great comfort for us in our present life that we don't need to be afraid of death. We don't need to be fearful of what may come, however, however uh, imposing or intimidating the enemy might look, because he's a defeated foe. He's bound. And all he could possibly do is take our lives physically, but he cannot touch our spirits, and he cannot prevent us in any way from ascending and ruling and reigning with our Savior. But thirdly, it should give us real boldness. We're called to take the gospel to all the nations. I, uh, Pastor Chancher, I guess, was in the American Standard Version this morning, and which said, lo, I am with you always. 
Uh, the King James uses that same language, lo, I am with you always. The NIV and ESV don't use that term. But I, I, I recall a, a missionary in, when I was in seminary speaking in chapel on the Great Commission, and he said, gentlemen, no go, no low. In other words, Jesus' promise to be with us is as we go. But we don't have to be afraid of what might happen if we're serious about following Jesus and proclaiming his excellencies to this dark world because he's bound this strong man. And he will bless the preaching of his gospel. He will conquer all his and all our enemies. He will gather his elect from every tribe and nation and people and tongue. He will use the church. He will use you and me to bring that about. We have the privilege of being involved in his great gospel endeavor. And when all that's over with, we have the prospect of heaven. What a glorious blessing when our deepest longings will be satisfied. No more sorrow or fear No more mourning or crying or pain. The old order passes away. All things made new. Everything that was wrong in this world is resolved. All those who have persecuted the people of God will be judged and all wrongs will be made right. I'm not real sure. There's a whole lot about heaven. I don't know. What does it look like to rule and reign with Jesus? I don't know. It's way better than I can imagine. It's it's far beyond. What does it mean? He, He gives us fills us with pleasure at his right hand. I don't know how glorious and how euphoric that pleasure would be. It's better than we can imagine. And if we can lay hold of that, please hear me. If we can lay hold of the reality, it's better than you can imagine. Why would you not give yourself to Christ? Why would you not seek him? Why would you not come to him? Why would you not embrace that offer? All who come to me, I will never cast out. We look forward to that day. We look forward to what we have in store in Christ, ruling and reigning with him. And my prayer is that every single man, woman, boy, and girl in this room and in your family will be there together. Richard.